At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. And we'll set up here carefully in this Bermuda Triangle of feedback that we got going on. I think we're safe right about here. All right. Church, are you excited? The great thing. All right. Excitement in the air. There's so much for us to be excited about this morning. In prayer outside, we touched on a lot of these things, and, and Dan spoke of a bunch of them here. Uh, the community is opening its arms to our church. There's less hostility and there's more welcoming us. They see us as being here to stay and being a solid part of this community. And they're starting to see us as a church that helps and is there and is reliable. That's such an exciting thing for us. Um, we're coming through the end of a, a, a very odd virus time, time here, and we've been able to minister to this community through it. That's so exciting. We found new and exciting ways to reach out to people through Facebook and other media, and it's, it's very exciting. And finally, a few doors down, the hopes of a brand new building for us to call a permanent home right here in the center of town. I don't know why you're not jumping out of your seats with excitement right now. That is so awesome, but if we can make it a, a tad somber here for a moment, right outside of these walls, right outside of those plate glass windows, that excitement isn't present in our community right now. It's a very tough time for people out there who do not know Jesus. The Atlantic, the literary magazine The Atlantic, published an article entitled, I was depressed before all of this, so now what? Right? It describes this pandemic as a mass trauma or a collective grief or a feeling that it's the end of the world. And the Kaiser Family Foundation found that nearly half of the population of our country is feeling that despair. And to back that up, USA Facts reports that 48% of Americans are feeling depressed or hopeless right now. There's got to be something else behind this. It can't just be a virus. So why? And if we go outside of these walls and we talk to people, we look around, we turn on the TV, it's easy to see that our country has misplaced its hope. This culture has put its hope in, and I say culture, we as Christians, we're guilty of some of this too. We've put our hope in our jobs, in our employment, in our income. We've put our hopes in our retirement fund out there. It will be there for us to keep us safe. A very humanistic approach to our hope. We cling to the hope of our education or hope of our degrees. We, we stake our hopes on our families and our friends. Some of us have even pinned our hopes on our leaders or our president or our government as a whole. And Oh my gosh, right? As a society, we've removed God from our system of hope and we've replaced that with a very humanistic focus. The problem is that when the world shakes and when this humanistic foundation that we have crumbles, everything else fails. And right now the world is asking out loud and the world is asking us as Christians, is hope dead? It's a good question for them to be asking right now. Is hope dead? See, they're finding that they have a hole in their souls that they don't have anything to fill it with. And they're desperate to fill it. So please hear this, church. 
in this season of political and racial upheaval and global uncertainty and violent instability, the silver lining behind all of this is that people are realizing that their progressive ideals don't deliver on what they promise. So back to our excitement. We're not excited that those people are depressed and they've got this hole in their souls. We're excited that we have the answer for them. People are desperate to find meeting and identity and community, and that's what we have here, because hope is not dead. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Hope has a pulse, because he rose from the dead and he's alive today. And that's the whole point of this text in 1 Peter that we're going to be exploring this morning, that Jesus is our living hope. So if you're here this morning and you're searching for meaning, if you're new, this is great news for you. Or maybe you're here and you know Jesus as your Savior. You can take comfort in knowing that the Word does not leave us helpless when it comes to navigating this culture. It doesn't leave us without a guide. So we're diving into a new sermon series this morning. I'm excited about that. It's called Unshakable. It's going to welcome us into the first century world of the Apostle Peter. For the next eight weeks, we'll be camped out here and we're going to read what he wrote and apply to our lives what Peter wrote about the unshakable hope that we have in Jesus. See, First Peter was written to a scattered and persecuted group of Christians. Judaism, the, the religion of the Jews, was an approved religion in Roman culture. And the Romans tolerated them. But now these Christians are coming on the scene, and it's very quick to see that Christians believe something completely different than the Jews. And the Romans take notice. Judaism is an approved religion. Christianity is not. And the result of that is state-funded persecution on these Christians. It's a very tough time being under state-funded persecution by the government of Rome. And that's what Peter wrote. He wrote a letter of hope to those churches. As you turn to 1 Peter this morning in your devices or in your Bibles, chapter 1, we're going to see that that hope is active. For them in that time and for us here as well, that hope is active. It's something that we participate in and practice every day. It's not passive. It's not something we believe and put on the shelf. So as we're active in our hope in Christ, what do we do when the world around us pushes back? What do we do when they say that what we believe is wrong or dangerous? What do we do when we're beginning to suffer because we're proclaiming Jesus? Or when what was once called immoral and evil is now called good and celebrated in our country? And what do we do when what was once good and celebrated is now seen as religious radicalism or Christian extremism or even bigotry? What do we do? The first thing this morning that we do when we're navigating through the insecurities of this culture is praise God that heaven is secured. Let's look at 1 Peter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 first. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When you were a kid, did any of you want to change your name? Am I the only one in here that wanted a different name? All right, there's one. You can't have a different name. You're my kid. <laughs> I was Bill. I was proud to be named after my dad. But Bill, you know, Schoolhouse Rock was not a friend to me. Bill from Capitol Hill. You know, I picked up the name Billy Belly Bucker from some of my friends. I, I thought it would be better if I had a stronger name like Mark or Steve. And Rhonda confided in me that even though she was proud, Rhonda, to be named after Ron, her father, she also thought it would be neat to be named Jennifer. That was the trendy name in the 80s. Because with a new name comes a different self-image. And God had a habit of renaming people when he put them on mission. We see Abram turn to Abraham when he was being made the father of many generations, of many nations in Genesis 17. And his wife Sarai became Sarah as those many nations would flow through her in a miraculous late-life pregnancy. A few generations later, Jacob would become Israel. And then a few centuries later, several centuries later, Simon, the lowly fisherman, would become Peter, the rock on which Jesus would build his church. So there's no mistaking who wrote this letter that we're reading this morning. We're not reading first Simon. Simon's gone. It's Peter, the rock. Peter the uneducated who would become the bold apostle. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, but would later become the preacher of the first ever Christian sermon where thousands would come to faith in Jesus. This is Peter, part of Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John, who would be with Christ at the transfiguration and who would be with him in his final hours in the garden. It's that Peter. So with that introduction, let's get back to the text. Peter is writing to a very specific group of people that he calls, in verse 1, we see elect exiles of the dispersion. That's a title that works in the first century for those Christians, and it works for us as well, because we have been renamed too by Christ. We were once called enemies of God. Now we're called branches of the one true vine. We're called his workmanship. We're called citizens of heaven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We were called children of wrath, but now we're called adopted and chosen, and we're called set apart. And here in 1 Peter, we're referred to by another wonderful name, the elect. Peter says, elect exiles, and they're such strong but opposite words. On one hand, he's saying that we're chosen by God, a beautiful name meaning that you and I are drawn into salvation by God himself. Right away, that identifies us as a people of God, distinct from the world, but still very much a part of the world. But they're also called exiles, or pilgrims, or strangers, or a people whose home address doesn't match the people around them. So it's up and it's down. It's encouraging to us, elect, and yet it's a little bit ominous that we're exiles. It's glorious and it's uncomfortable at the same time. It's a statement of who we are according to the foreknowledge of God. He knows us by name. He's that personal. 
And the God beyond time knew us before time. He holds time and he holds us. The theological word for this is omniscience. That means he's all-knowing. He was there before the beginning and he knows the end and he knows you personally. And that personal God set us apart by his spirit for this particular time. He called us, his elect, to this moment, to this place, to this season, right here. You and I have been chosen by God and set apart so that we can be obedient to Jesus with our lives right here in Albanac. And that's a reason that we have to be super excited. Jesus did the work. It was his sacrifice. According to the perfect timing of God the Father, and the Spirit's perfect work of faith in our lives that saved us into his family. Do you see the three persons of the Trinity at work in our conversion? Let's read what Paul has to say about it. Galatians 4, 4, 4 through 7. Galatians 4. Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. We see God. We see the Son. Born of woman. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a glorious triune description of who we are in Christ. It makes your head explode. It's so awesome. And that's who we are in him. But then we see right on the other hand that we're exiles. See the disparity between the two. Adopted by God, yet enemies according to the world. Children of God, yet chastised by the world. Friends of God, yet foes according to the world. Is that how you're beginning to feel? Are you sensing where the culture is headed today? Have you felt the sting of rejection from people around you who can't understand how you can think or believe or live or love the way that you do? Notice what Peter says, God's mercy has done for all of us who believe. Verse 3, he says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been spiritually reborn into a living hope. Our hope is alive because our hope is a person who is alive. Our hope isn't just a feeling or a good idea that all of this is going to work out okay. It's a literal person who demonstrated that God's goodness and blessing will be the end of all this. That's what the resurrection proves to us. It's not some feeble, wobbly, man-based philosophy. It's unshakable fact. We've been freely given, look at verse 4, we've been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if God's power holds your salvation, if God's power holds your soul, if God's power holds this promise of heaven for you, do you think that you have the ability to lose it? Are you stronger than that power of God? Is your word more powerful than God's? Praise God every day that heaven is secured. It's kept and it's held, and it's guarded by him for you. Let's be honest about the current moment. 
Our human response to this pandemic and this societal unrest has given us people and given us policies and given us philosophies that overpromise and underdeliver. And when these humanistic ideals fail, people lose hope altogether. And they have to put their hope in something. That's the way we're wired. So when the object of somebody's hope fails, they look for a new place to put it. Can't put it in faith. Faith's been kicked off the pedestal by our world. And people eventually realize that putting that hope in themselves doesn't work out all that well either. Our culture, and our culture ends up asking government to do things that government cannot do. We turn to politics for our meaning and purpose and identity. And again, they overpromise and they underdeliver because politics can never be a savior. But Christ can. In him, we find our story. We find meaning. We find purpose. We've been promised heaven through the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's a promise that will be delivered because the tomb is empty. He is alive. So ask yourself, is your life a picture-perfect vision of praise because you know who you are and who you belong to? If that's not 100% true, if you've taken even a small portion and trusted in yourself or trusted in your government or trusted in your job or your employment, confess that. Confess where you've attached your purpose to human institutions and embrace what's already yours in Christ. Lay down the false hopes that we've been carrying and put your hope in the only place it belongs. It's in the gracious gospel of Jesus. So what's the next thing we can do when we're navigating through the insecurities of our culture? It's we can praise God that our suffering reveals our faith. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So true. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I like that Peter's honest here. Trials are terrible to experience. They produce grief. And it's okay to be grieved when we're going through these trials. It's okay to have to fight for joy when we're suffering through these things. And even though it hurts and our pain is there and very obvious, it leads us to an awareness that we're not yet home. And it helps remind us that all of this is temporary. That's why community here, gathering together as a church, is so important. That's why our groups are so important. We're not meant to weather these, these storms and these trials and these fires by ourselves. We're meant to gather together to be able to pray with each other. And when we come through on the other side, to be able to rejoice together and applaud the Lord for what he's doing. And you know, in these trials, almost every time, the main question that comes up when people are suffering is why? You see it all the time. Why? 
And Peter doesn't leave us without an answer to that why question. It's right in the text this morning. He says that these trials purify us compared to a fire. That the fire doesn't consume us, the fire purifies us. When we were up in the Upper Peninsula on vacation about a month ago, one of the things we did was visit Fayette. It's a ghost town in the Upper Peninsula. It used to be an iron ore smelting town of about 500 people. And you can walk through the restored buildings, and some of them are still in shambles, and you can see the way people smelted iron ore in the 1800s. And as a boy, I'm drawn to the smelting furnace where the actual industry took place. You know, there's like a school and a general store and all that silly stuff over there where you can buy hats and nonsense. But I want to see where this ore is smelted because it comes out of the surrounding communities and it comes in and it's crushed and it's heated in this massive blast furnace so that all the impurities from that ore rise to the surface. And then you take the impurities, that slag and that dross, and you wipe it off. And what's left is iron, more pure than when it went into the furnace. And that's what Peter's showing us here. That these fires will not consume us. They're meant to purify our faith. So that any humanism, any place where we have attached our faith to the human world or to things that are not of Christ, as we go through these trials, we can sift those impurities off and have a faith that is more well-defined and more focused on Jesus. And we can praise God that the fire of suffering is good and it reveals our faith because the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. But we shouldn't be surprised when these fires come. We're going to go through troubles. Jesus promised that. In several places in his word, he told us that many times. Luke chapter 10, Luke records Jesus as he was sending the 72 out to be his witnesses. He told them, go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You think trials are going to come their way? You drop lambs in the midst of wolves? What a picture. Or in John 15, 18 through 20, John records, If the world hates you, these are Jesus' words, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Neat thing about this, as I was looking through this this morning, Jesus is telling people to expect these trials, but if you go just before this passage into verse 17, he gives them a command to love one another. It's a drawing to community. You're going to experience these trials, but love one another, so that as you're going through these trials, you have people alongside of you. It's another beautiful example of why community is so important. You might not love the suffering. It might be a little bit weird if you do. But let's look for the joy in the outcome. The suffering of Christ revealed that the center of his trust was in the Father. While Jesus was in the middle of suffering, he was able to see the joy that was set out before him, knowing that through that suffering, salvation would come to many. This is the only way we can experience joy in the midst of suffering, by looking ahead to the outcome. And that's a stronger faith in Jesus. James says it like this, James 1, 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If you're suffering this morning, I know a lot of you are, be honest about the fact that there's no joy in the suffering itself, but realize that there's joy to be found in the outcome. That's what Peter's after here, a hope-filled outcome. Look ahead, friends. Lift up your heads and see where your help comes from. And finally, as we navigate through the insecurities of our culture, we should praise God that salvation has come. Let's look at verses 10, and 12, 10 through 12, 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Even though those Old Testament prophets did not clearly know when their prophecies would be realized, they did foretell that Christ would suffer and then would be glorified. And we are the recipients of those promises. For us, the waiting is over. Jesus, the good news has come. Forgiveness and grace have come. New life has come. Hope is here. And in heaven, you imagine this in your mind's eye for a moment. In heaven, every created heavenly being had been longing to see God's redemptive plan unfold. The anticipation of this must have been huge, as from before the world began, the Lord was orchestrating this beautiful plan of redemption. And at the center of it all was the Messiah, was our Savior Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus was not the end of history as the enemy would like us to believe, but it was the final stroke of God's brilliant work of redemption for us. So it raises, I think, the most important question this morning. Have you responded personally to Christ in faith? Do you believe that, believe that his work alone can save you? Though you haven't seen him, as 1 Peter wrote, have you responded to him? He's the only security that will satisfy. And when the ground shook at the cross the day that Jesus died, he became the firm foundation for us to plant our hope in. There's no other person or philosophy or policy out there that can offer that. So church, we're a people full of hope. Our hope is alive because we know Jesus is alive. And we know that hope in Christ will not disappoint. Instead, it'll give you a new name. We listed those new names. It'll give you a new identity in Christ. And it'll give you a new desire to tell others about the hope that they're searching for and that it can be found in Christ alone. you pray with me? Oh, gracious Lord, so much beauty in your word this morning. We thank you so much for your word, for the instructions that it gives us in navigating this culture. We thank you for its relevance to us today and what we're going through and how we can see the similarities with what your church went through in the first century. We confess, Father, anything that we have here on earth that we hope in in place of you, 
we confess and lay those things at your feet. We pray that you will replace it with a hope that is in Christ alone. Father, refine our faith. As we go through these fires, help us to look forward to the joy of having a faith that is more refined and more in tune with you, focused on you and not on this world. Lord, draw us together in close community. Draw us together in our groups so we can celebrate and share and pray with each other as we go through these trials. And we pray that the result would be a church that is on fire for you, would be a church that reaches out to this community and pulls more people in, adds more wonder and more excitement to this bride. Lord, we love you. We pray that all the glory would be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.